Good morning. We will uh, begin this uh, hearing. Uh, it's large saying we're going to be having votes in a couple hours, so we we'll want to make sure we move quickly through this. Uh, uh, before I start, I want to acknowledge that our, our good friend and ranking member of the committee, um, uh, Frank Pallone, is not with us today because his father died. Uh, we keep that his family in our prayers. And although I did not personally know uh, Frank Pallone Sr., um, I know he raised a good son. And so we, uh, we thank him for that. And we'll continue on from there. Uh, next, uh, joined today also with my uh, colleague who's wearing Denver Broncos orange. And uh, congratulations for a Super Bowl. They must be a good team because they beat the Steelers. <coughs> now, on with our hearing. Uh, good morning. We're reminded on a nearly daily basis that those who are seeking to do us harm through a variety of means, including biological attacks. The threats of attack and disease outbreaks are growing and ever-changing, and we are ill-prepared to detect and respond to these threats as rapidly as needed. Put simply, we have been caught flat-footed too many times in the past. We face a deadly enemy we cannot see. Our methods to find it are woefully inadequate. We may not even know it's there until it's too late, and this is frightening. The Federal Government's ambivalence towards biological, biological threats must end. Today, the biological threats confronting the U.S. generally fall into three distinct categories. One, naturally occurring, two, accidental incidents, and three, intentional acts, which are often associated with acts of terrorism. We, mu we must be ready to guard against and respond to each of these threats appropriately. Now, it's easier for nation states and terrorists to obtain the resources necessary to produce biological weapons than ever before. And given the ease with which one can obtain and transport these resources, it is difficult for the intelligence community to collect analyze and produce intelligence about biological threats. The threat of a biological attack is not as remote as one would hope. At the same time, pandemic and other highly pathogenic diseases are occurring with greater frequency and spreading more quickly th throughout the world. As human populations put increasing pressure on remote areas and with ease of global travel, we will see more and more infectious diseases emerge. Since 2002, the world has seen outbreaks of SARS, chikungunya, uh, cholera, influenza, measles, Ebola, MERS, and now Zika. The U.S. response to Ebola was a humbling reminder of the adage that everyone has a plan until they are punched in the face. We were not prepared for Ebola and actions were described with great confidence one day and determined to be ineffective the next. This is what shakes the public's confidence and instead of ensuring that the U.S. had strong central leadership, the administration's answer was to appoint an Ebola czar who served for three months. Sadly, the ad hoc approach continues. A Zika outbreak now threatens the continental U.S. What the world initially thought was a mild illness could, in fact, have far greater consequences if the virus also brings increases in microcephaly, Guillain-Barre syndrome, eye disorders, and potential for later developmental problems in children. While the administration has submitted a $1.8 billion emergency request to combat Zika, its latest budget request continues to leave funding gaps of more than $1.8 billion in Project BioShields, Special Reserve Fund, and pandemic flu countermeasures. Over the last three years, this subcommittee has examined the impacts of and our preparedness for natural and accidental biological incidents. We've held hearings on our flawed response to the Ebola crisis, the need for better preparedness for pandemic and seasonal influenzas, the unsafe practices by the Department of Defense and Centers for Disease Control on the handling of live anthrax, and the Department of Homeland Security's broken biowatch system. In the coming weeks, we will examine the federal response to the Zika virus. Each of these topics has a common denominator. The federal government was not adequately prepared. 
For years, we have lunged from crisis to crisis, reacting to what just occurred instead of planning for the next outbreak or attack. The subcommittee's oversight work has made a difference in each area, but I am very concerned that the federal government lacks an overall plan for biodefense. Instead of being reactionary, we must be proactive with a new approach. Last fall, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense published its National Blueprint for Biodefense. Uh, the panel examined the current state of biodefense in the United States, examined issues related to prevention, deterrence, preparedness, detection, and response, to name a few. This is not a book that should sit dusty on a shelf, but one that people should read. And I am pleased that two distinguished commission members, Secretary Donna Shalala and former chairman of this subcommittee, Congressman Jim Greenwood, are here today to speak about the important work of this panel. We thank you. The panel's findings that we are, quote, dangerously vulnerable, unquote, to a biological event because we lack leadership and an overall strategy are frightening. The panel made 33 recommendations, many which fall within the jurisdiction of the Energy and Commerce Committee and impact work that this subcommittee has done and will continue to do. The need for improved leadership echoes throughout the panel's report and is unfortunately a theme we have heard far too often about the federal government. Without leadership, there is no coordination of biodefense research, preparedness, and other issues, and without leadership, there is no strategy. The panel also makes a number of specific recommendations. We must improve our biosurveillance and biodetection capabilities. We need to detect pathogens in the air in hours and eventually minutes, not days. Agencies already collecting surveillance data should share it, not squirrel it away. We need a platform that allows for rapid diagnostic testing and vaccine development that can be applied not only to the diseases and pathogens we currently know about, but also to the ones we have not yet discovered. The Energy and Commerce Committee and this subcommittee in particular must take the lead in understanding and improving our biodefense capabilities. I thank our witnesses for being with us today. We look forward to hearing your testimony. And I now recognize the ranking uh, member of the subcommittee, Mr. Gap, for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. I, too, want to welcome our witnesses, in particular, uh, Congress, former Congressman Greenwood, who sat right there in the chair you're sitting in for many years and who, who sat next to me while we had a lot of the hearings on these issues that you mentioned in your opening statement today. And I know he's just as frustrated as you and I are about the fact that we still, we still continue to lurch from crisis to crisis in this country without any kind of um, unified or comprehensive response to, to some of these issues. Uh, when I was listening to your opening statement, Mr. Chairman, I thought to myself, who says bipartisanship is dead? Because my opening statement mirrors your opening statement to the point of, of uh, talking about some of the very same examples that you discussed. So I won't read the whole opening statement because I do not subscribe to the adage that everything's been said, but it hasn't been said by everybody. So I'll put it into the record. I, I just want to highlight a couple of the issues. Uh, we've got the Zika virus going on, as you mentioned, right now, and we're scrambling once again um, after the fact to deploy the appropriate resources to protect our citizens as this spreads. Uh, last year, it was the Ebola outbreak. Uh, we did finally organize to respond that, um, and, uh, and we're still trying to put the systems in place to make sure that Ebola doesn't spring up again. Uh, this national blueprint for biodefense um, made a, a number of important findings on how to respond to these natural occurring threats, but also how to respond to deliberate attack. As you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, the panel made three dozen recommendations to better posture our government to respond to these emerging bio threats. 
Now, for those of us who were here during the fall of 2001, rem we remember vividly those little few envelopes of anthrax that arrived on Capitol Hill and the chaos that it caused within Congress. Offices were closed, buildings were fumigated, some congressional business was suspended, thousands of staffers and members of Congress lined up to get tested for exposure, and even worse, of course, some of the workers in the postal centers died. Now, this was a relatively small attack, so imagine what would happen if we had a large attack in a major metropolitan area or someplace else. That's why we have to be organized to deal with these things. And that's what brings us back to the findings of this panel. Um, you know, there are a number of, of really important recommendations, and I recommend to every member of this panel and every member of the audience that you read, you read the, the actual blueprint because it is um, sobering. But um, I think that the top observation that's made in this blueprint is that the nation is underprepared for a bioattack because we still lack centralized biodefense leadership. The panel recommends appointment of a single national leader under which preparedness for and response to biological threats could be consolidated. The panel recommends this authority be institutionalized in the office of the Vice President of the United States. And what the panel says is uh, that this will, ins quote, ensure that biodefense will be addressed by every administration at the highest levels with adequate access to the president. I think this is a very unique recommendation and one that we should explore. Um, I, and I just want to say one more thing, Mr. Chairman. Uh, one of the grand traditions of the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee is to shine light on issues like this and to actually move the dialogue forward. So I was really gratified to hear you saying in your opening statement that you don't just intend to have this hearing today and let this go. I think if we really have a series of hearings diving deeply into the recommendations of the committee and, and take their recommendation that we have some of these hearings, we actually can make a long-term difference in how this nation is prepared. And that may be the very best legacy that not only this Blue Ribbon Committee, but also this, sub, this subcommittee of Energy and Commerce can leave. Uh, with that, um, I'll put my full statement in the record, but I'd also like to ask unanimous consent to put Ranking Member Pallone's full statement in the record due to his inability to be here with his, his father's death. Thank you very much, and I yield back. Uh, Yes, and well, I'll also ask unanimous consent that any other members written opening statements be introduced in the record, and without objections, they will be entered. And I believe, uh, Mr. Chairman, you don't have an opening statement. And again, given the, the rush, we want to make sure we hear everything and every member gets a chance to ask questions before votes. We'll just move forward. So I will introduce the witnesses on the panel for today's hearing. The first witness on today's panel is the Honorable Donna Shalala. Welcome here. It's an honor to have you here. Former Secretary of Health and Human Services and here today as a member of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Bow Defense. Over the course of her career, Secretary Shalala has demonstrated a strong commitment to public service from the Peace Corps to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. She is a recipient of the Medal of Freedom and currently serves as President and CEO of the Clinton Foundation. We appreciate your time here today. And next, my friend and colleague uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, the Honorable Jim Greenwood, former Congressman from the 8th District of Pennsylvania, Chairman of the Subcommittee from 2001 to 2004. Mr. Greenwood is also a member of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense and served since 2005 as President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. In this capacity, he has worked with Bio's 1,200 member organization to aid in the development of biotech solutions. 
to major challenges in agriculture and healthcare. And we also look forward to your insights. Next, uh, Dr. Tara O'Toole, who serves as a senior fellow and executive vice president at NQTEL, a nonprofit strategic investment firm that works to facilitate connection and cooperation between venture-backed technology startups with the U.S. intelligence community. Dr. O'Toole formerly served as Undersecretary of Science and Technology at the Department of Homeland Security and Assistant Secretary for Environmental Health and Safety at the Department of Energy. And looking forward to hearing your expertise today during the hearing. And thank you also for being here. And now I'll uh, yield to uh, Mr. Flores, who will introduce our next witness from Texas. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Also, uh, thank you uh, for uh, holding this hearing today and for the courtesy of allowing me to introduce one of my classmates and a fellow Texas Aggie and a renowned expert on public health. Dr. Jerry Parker serves as the Vice President for Public Health Preparedness and Response at the Texas A&M Health Science Center. At Texas A&M, he oversees the largest federal public-private partnership with the Health and Human Services Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority commonly referred to as BARDA, for vaccine development and manufacture. Prior to his current role at A&M, Dr. Parker had a distinguished career in public and military service, including serving as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Chemical and Biological Defense, and in that position, he was responsible for the military's readiness on many of the issues that are before us today. Dr. Parker also served as a principal Deputy, principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS, and in a similar role at the Department of Homeland Security. Again, Mr. Chairman, thank you for allowing me the time to introduce Dr. Parker, his senior leadership positions at the Texas A&M Health Science Center, the Department of Defense, HHS, and DHS are critical to the topic before this committee. And thank you, Dr. Parker, for being with us today. I yield back. Joan yields back, and if there's no more statements, we will, uh, uh, comments will proceed here. Um, as you all aware that this committee is holding an investigative hearing, and when doing so has had the practice of taking testimony under oath. Do any of our witnesses have any objections to take giving testimony under oath? Seeing no objections, the chair then advises you that under the rules of the House and the rules of the committee, you are entitled to be advised by counsel. Do any of you desire to be advised by counsel during testimony today? And all the witnesses say no. In that case, if you would all please rise and raise your right hand, I'll swear you in. We swear the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thank you. And all the witnesses said I do. You are now under oath and subject to the penalties set forth in Title 18, Section 1001 of the United States Code. We will now uh, entertain each of you with a five-minute summary of your, written, uh, your opening statement. We will begin with Ms. Shalala. You're recognized for five minutes. Just turn the microphone on and pull it close to you. Good afternoon, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Congresswoman Duguet and members of the subcommittee, I've submitted a lengthy testimony uh, for the record. Um, thank you in for inviting us here to present our views and recommendations of the bipartisan Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. I'm pleased to be joining uh, former Representative G Jim Greenwood. We're here on behalf of our co-chairs, former Senator Joe Lieberman and Governor Tom Ridge, and the other members of our panel, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle and former Homeland Security Advisor Ken Weinstein. It's also good to see uh, Dr. Jerry Parker, who was one of our ex-officios, as well as um, uh, Dr. Taro Toole, who constantly advises all of us on this important subject. We are deeply concerned about the biological threat, whether intentionally induced, naturally occurring, or accidentally released. 
And I want to emphasize those three issues because this is not uh, a report just um, on intentionally induced um, biological threat. It also covers the naturally occurring ones or the accidentally released. I want to take a moment to address the threat now, but let me recommend that you get a classified briefing at your earliest opportunity. Make no mistake, we've been told that our enemies are seriously considering the use of biological weapons. During the invasion of Afghanistan, the United States uncovered evidence that Al-Qaeda was trying to develop biological weapons. More recently, ISIL has gained control of enough land, physical infrastructure, scientific expertise, and professional military personnel to potentially create and deploy biological weapons, and they have expressed their intent to use them. Additionally, the verification protocols associated with the Biological Weapons and Toxic Toxin Convention are weak and do not do what the world needs them to do, differentiate between legitimate and malicious activities. We're equally concerned about the threat of naturally occurring diseases with catastrophic pandemic potential. It's often very difficult for our scientists to guess the correct combination of viruses that will even make up the strain of influenza that will circulate the following year. Nevertheless, diseases do not have to kill millions to produce impact. Uh, there are a number of diseases that have affected my own state of Florida and New York and Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, America, Samoa over the last two years. Now Zika virus is on the move as well, in some cases resulting in microencephalopathies um, in newborns who contact it from their mother. The first case of local transmission has occurred in the United States, in Dallas, which of course was the first city with an Ebola case. This transmission did not occur from mosquitoes. It was sexually transmitted. Imagine the devastating societal consequences if we cannot stop the spread of this disease. Accidental releases also contribute to biological risk. I'm sure that you're aware of the recent laboratory biosecurity and biosafety mishaps at a number of our high-level laboratories. The organisms in which these laboratories work are too serious, too infectious, and too deadly for us to react indignantly, only to forget after a few months and move on to the next challenge. Our change must be institutionalized and sustained, and that is our fundamental message today. Our attention span tends to increase and decrease cyclically as different events occur and their impacts fade over time. Since I was Secretary of Health and Human Services, I have seen three administrations increase and decrease their emphasis on biological threats, usually in response to and after recovering from incidents such as the anthrax events of 2001, SARS, H1N1, MERS, and Ebola. And now we're all gearing up again for the Zika virus. We need a leader at the highest level of government to take responsibility and develop a comprehensive strategy and a unified budget and lead the whole of the government along with non-governmental partners to improve our national biodefense and to do say so attentively and consistently. We recommend that that person be the Vice President of the United States. 
one of the few who can get the government agencies and the non-governmental partners to work together. We are not necessarily talking about new programs or funding. Instead, we believe we can build on existing programs and infrastructure. And let me give you a few examples. We ought to be able to take an environmental biodetection system that was originally designed for the battlefield, for example, evaluate it, and if it seems useful, then modify it to fulfill our needs domestically. We should see how we could build on our pre-existing pervasive and familiar system of community far pharmacies to get pharmaceuticals to localities in the midst of a biological incident and maybe create smaller caches in advance. We cannot depend solely on a federally driven public point of dispensing model. Or take our hospitals, which meet accreditation criteria associated with funding provided by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. We can use that to address various specialties, like trauma, for example. Doing the same for biodefense would cultivate better hospital preparedness for major infectious disease events. In doing so, we could create a stratified hospital system in advance of a biological event, knowing exactly which facilities are best positioned to handle cases. The well, funding could you, that we could get through Ms. CMS Shalina? is far greater than what is currently available through the Hospital Preparedness Program. While we support this grant program, is simply never going to be resourced enough to meet the need. Could you uh, just give a wrap up, because you're over a couple minutes. I just want to make sure we have time for everybody. In closing. Okay. okay. In closing, I just want to okay. note that Congress plays a critical role in providing necessary oversight and legislation. We need all of you uh, to consider these recommendations and hopefully to move forward. And now, uh, um, after you've heard from Jim Greenwood, uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you very much. Mr. Greenwood, you're recognized for five minutes. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm I'm tempted to ask unanimous consent to insert your opening statement and the opening statement of Ranking Member get as a preface to our report because it's gratifying to see how aligned you already are with our recommendations. So thank you for inviting me to, to discuss preparedness for biological threats on behalf of the Bipartisan Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Defense. As the former chair of this subcommittee, I am especially honored to be testifying here today. This hearing is quite timely, not because a catastrophic biological event has recently occurred, but because one has not occurred on U.S. soil. Whether it's the reintroduction of smallpox by a terrorist, a dirty bomb in an urban center, or another pandemic influenza outbreak, as the panel notes in our report, we are underprepared to respond to these threats, and we must take immediate steps to be better prepared. It's been a great privilege to serve on the study panel with my esteemed colleagues. Our report starts from the premise that the biological threat is real, and it is growing. While we are prepared, we are better prepared today than we were a decade ago due to federal and private sector investments, the fact is we are still dramatically underprepared. Our report outlines 33 recommendations, and as Secretary Shalala stated, we as a panel all strongly support the first recommendation calling for a centralization of leadership over biodefense in the office of the Vice President. I would like to further focus on the recommendations related to strengthening the public-private partnership as industry plays a key role in protecting our nation. Consider a company with a novel technology applicable to the bio threats of emerging diseases 
identified by HHS. This company wants to partner with the government, but there are so many unique market challenges. Unlike products with a viable commercial market, the market for most medical countermeasures, or MCMs, is defined and supported solely by the federal government, making it a major source of research funding and the primary purchaser of vaccines, therapies, and diagnostics against these unique threats. Many companies begin research at their own risk, conducting R&D even before receiving federal government funds. Over the last few years, a government funding for MCM, government funding for MCM R&D has been decreasing, just as the number of threats have been increasing. The investor community views these products as risky and a distraction from similar products that have a clear commercial value, making it difficult to raise the necessary R&D funds for MCMs in the private capital markets. The regulatory pathway is not always clear. Lastly, industry has seen a precipitous drop in the level of funds for the purchase of the final MCMs. For many companies, the biggest risk is that they will invest significant internal funds and time developing a product only to find there is no clear procurement strategy from the U.S. government due to sudden shifts in priorities or dearth of funds. Given all this, we strongly support the need for a comprehensive, multi-year strategic plan and unified budget that clearly outlines the priorities for R&D and procurement of medical countermeasures and pandemic influenza products. Such a strategic document would provide much-needed transparency on governmental priorities and projected requirements, thus helping companies determine what products to pursue in this partnership. The MCM enterprise must be fully funded. The Project BioShield Special Reserve Fund, the SRF, was created to provide companies with a guaranteed market for MCMs by establishing a 10-year advanced appropriation of $5.6 billion. The SRF has indeed proved successful in attracting companies to invest in MCM R&D. 12 M MCMs were procured during the 10-year period, and there are over 200 MCMs in the pipeline. But the progress made due to Congress's initial $5.6 billion investment is now in jeopardy. The SRF was reauthorized at $2.8 billion for FY 2014 through 2018, but rather than a set-aside sum of money, the program has been funded through annual appropriations and much lower than the authorized amount. Unless, unless funding increases, we are risking a $600 million to a $1 billion shortfall. Such a sustained deficit endangers the progress we have made and puts the 200 product candidates in the pipeline at risk. Similarly, pandemic influenza has, woeful, has been woefully underfunded the last few years. Pandemic influenza is a known threat that is very challenging, given its versatile and persistent nature. It is imperative that our pandemic preparedness include advanced development of vaccines, antivirals, and diagnostics, rapid response capability building, and the re replenishment of vaccine and antiviral stockpiles. Our plan calls for Congress to provide a legislative authorization to define and, define and guide pandemic influenza programs in order to ensure that they receive the funding needed. Novel incentives could demonstrate the government's commitment to MCM development. One of the most important incentives in the report is the priority review voucher, the PRV program, for pathogens designed as material threats. The PRV is a proven and valuable incentive that has helped to spur investment in other complex and neglected areas of R&D, such as neglected tropical diseases. 
An extension of the PRV program to include material threats is viewed by many as a way to offset the dramatic decline in procurement funding for MCMs. Adding MCM targets to the PRV program may help convince investors that the government is committed to this endeavor and provide increased certainty that MCMs have value. Improvement, one minute. Improvement must be made in the, con in con in the contracting process as well. In addition to robust, sustained funding, the public-private partnership must be strengthened through improvements to the contracting process within BARDA to make it more efficient and predictable. Streamlining is key to ensuring that there are not excessive delays in the implementation of vital research. I therefore call on Congress to swiftly pass H.R. 3299, the Strengthening Public Health Emergency Response Act of 2015. This bill focuses on many of the issues I have raised today and represents a strong initial step toward implementing the recommendations of the panel. This subcommittee plays an integral role through your oversight of federal biodefense programs. I commend the committee's recent attention to pandemic influenza, influenza preparedness and the letters to the, commi the committee sent to the administration about flu vaccine supply and development and strategic plans. I hope that the Energy and Commerce Committee and this subcommittee continue to examine the issues of biopreparedness further. The threats facing our nation are real and many. Having products to support our national preparedness relies on the work of a few dozen biopharmaceutical companies. The only way these companies can continue vital R&D and capacity building is if the U.S. government demonstrates a strong commitment to them by providing clear priorities, sustained funding, and real incentives. If we invest well now in the broader set of known threats, we will, better be, we will be better prepared to pivot and respond when faced with an unknown threat. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify on the work of the Blue Ribbon Study Commission. I commend the subcommittee for examining the state of our national preparedness for biological threats, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Chairman Greenwood. And now, uh, Dr. O'Toole, you're recognized for five minutes. Technology, yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I am very happy to be here today to discuss this topic, which has uh, been a preoccupation of mine for most of my professional career. I want to thank you for your kind introduction and emphasize the views I express of my own, not those of InQtel. Um, I want to start by congratulating the Blue Ribbon study, study Panel on their excellent report, um, which I hope will be highly influential. I especially endorse and share the panel's sense of urgency about repairing the country's vulnerability to high, highly consequential bioevents. Today, I want to briefly address three issues. First, I want to emphasize the nature and the significance of biological weapons threats and explain why it is a first-tier national security problem. Secondly, I want to describe why naturally occurring epidemics almost certainly will increase in frequency and impact in the coming years. Natural epidemics, it is important to understand, are different from deliberate bioattacks. The latter would be faster, fiercer, and it may be that many victims are beyond rescue. But if we cannot handle natural outbreaks more effectively and efficiently, we have no defense against biological weapons. Thirdly, there is a major revolution in our understanding of how the biological world works and our ability to manipulate it. 
the advances in, <clears throat> in bioscience and biotechnologies should be part of the foundation of U.S. biodefense against both natural and deliberate epidemics. These advances are going to be extremely beneficial to humankind across many different fields that go beyond biomedicine. But it also means that we now have created a world in which there is wide access to advanced biological knowledge and the materials needed to build and disseminate biological weapons. As the Defense Science Board said, in 2001, an age ago in terms of scientific advances, there are no technical barriers to non-state actors, including terrorist groups and lone wolves, carrying out devastating bioattacks that could kill millions and cost billions. But these advances in science and in biotechnology also, for the first time, give us powerful tools that could allow us to prevent and to rapidly detect and quench epidemics, whatever their cause. And I'm going to give you some examples of critical technologies which might help realize the panel's assertion that innovation is, key, is a key ingredient and that dramatic improvements in biodefense are within reach. First of all, the potential destructive power of biological weapons is akin to that of nuclear weapons. In 1993, the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment estimated that a kilogram of aerosolized anthrax dropped on Washington, D.C. in ideal weather conditions would result in one to three million deaths. That's about the same toll as a one megaton hydrogen bomb. These statements are not based on speculation, but on decades of development and field testing by the U.S. military during the offensive biological weapons program of the United States which was ended by President Nixon in 1969. We also know that the USSR had a massive secret offensive VW program created after they signed the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972. These were both ambitious, and at least in the case of the US, highly successful programs. During the Cold War, the US field tested many different bioweapons in realistic conditions, including releases from air, boats, ships, and subways. The classified U.S. documents from the 60s clearly recognized the strategic power of bioweapons. We do not now know the fate of the Soviet effort. In the half century since the U.S. ended its offensive VW program, there has been a revolution in bioscience. Advances in many fields, including pharmacology and aerosol biology, and our ability to read, write, and edit DNA, the code of life, have resulted in tremendous beneficial achievements. But these advances have also meant the global spread of bioknowledge and access to sophisticated biotechnologies. The materials and know-how needed to build a bioweapon have many legitimate uses. These are dual-use technologies, and as the chairman said, this makes the task of collecting intelligence about covert bioweapons programs exceedingly difficult. We are going to see an increase in the tep tempo of naturally occurring epidemics, which we can talk about in the discussion. I want to end by saying that there are two critical technologies that have not gotten sufficient attention in our biodefense program. The first is rapid diagnostics, upon which we've spent very little money and for which there is a very big market problem 
uh, that makes it difficult for private companies to pursue diagnostics, and the second is vaccines. I see them out of time, Mr. Chairman, so I will await your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now we recognize Dr. Parker for five minutes. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Murphy and Ranking Member. If you pull your mic real close to you, that would help. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the invitation to appear before you today. It is an honor to be here with Secretary Shaleda and Congressman Greenwood, who are representing the Blue Ribbon Panel, and Under Secretary O'Toole, who is one of our nation's highest regarded biodefense leaders. I will put an explanation point on the bioterror threat. For my part, I have been involved in biodefense since 1982 to the present. From the Cold War to the rise of violent extremism and the rapidly growing risk of naturally occurring transboundary emerging infectious diseases, I have been at the eye of the storm, witnessing the evolving biological threat over my career. Today, I am more concerned than ever about the risk of biological threats, including biological warfare, bioterrorism, and emerging infectious diseases. Biological threats are serious, whether naturally occurring, from an attack, or accidental release. The American public is starting to realize the threat of emerging infectious diseases following Ebola and now presumably Zika. Although the threat of biological warfare, and particularly biological terrorism, is very real too, it is less well understood. If there's any good news here, the number of countries thought to be conducting some type of illicit biological weapons activity, it has gone down from the end of the Cold War from about 12 to 5. But those countries include China, Iran, Russia, Syria, and North Korea. And their operational scenarios for use are no longer limited to military targets. Today, the risk from a bioterror attack from non-state actors, violent extremist groups, or individuals on civilian population is a reality. Biological weapons are sometimes called the poor man's atom bomb, a term first used during the Cold War because biological weapons, as we have heard, have the potential to cause mass casualties on the scale of a nuclear weapon. But even a simple bioterror attack, if we heard, as we heard earlier today, can have a devastating consequences, such as occurred from the anthrax letter attacks in 2001 that took five lives, sickened 17 more, and over 32,000 people took antibiotics because of potential exposure. And it could have been much worse from that simple attack. Some question the seriousness of the risk today because further bioattacks have not followed. And fortunately, additional attacks have not occurred, which I partially attribute to successful counterterrorism strategies. Why further attacks have not occurred, given the relative ease of mounting such an attack, coupled with our vulnerability, is up for debate. I do, do not want to overstate and particularly underestimate the threat and risk of a biological attack, and I also cannot predict the future. But we cannot ignore that extremists intend to do us harm by any means, and they are not morally constrained in the methods they use. The intent to acquire and use weapons of mass destruction by the likes of Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and others is known. Intelligence gathering is, is extremely difficult to detect a biological capability, an imminent threat, but we should not take the lack of intelligence as, as lack of threat. The discovery of an ISIL computer obtaining, containing plans to develop plague as a bioweapon should give us pause. Just this week, the Director of National Intelligence confirmed reports that the Islamic State 
used a chemical warfare agent in Iraq and Syria. The Islamic State is growing rapidly, has resources, controls necessary infrastructure and safe havens, and is recruiting scientists that would be capable of developing chemical and biological weapons. It may also be only a matter of time before a biologist becomes a self-inspired violent extremist. We must assume the threat is real and serious. In addition to bioterror attacks, naturally occurring emerging infectious diseases continue to happen with greater frequency. Pandemic potential influenza viruses, SARS, MERS-CoV, West Nile virus, chikungunya, dengue, Ebola, and now Zika are real experiences that tell us we may be on the verge of a global, global pandemic anytime. Our biological threat preparedness response enterprise must also be ready anytime. Biological threats are not new, but we seem to pay attention only when an outbreak occurs or an attack occurs and ignore it between outbreaks. The time between outbreaks or the inter-epidemic period, though, is precisely when urgent actions are needed to optimize resources to hone our preparedness and response systems. Before closing, I would also like to add that initiatives in global health security and One Health are critical too, and they enable work in the prevention side. I would like to thank the members of the subcommittee again for this opportunity, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. I thank you, Dr. Parker, and all the panelists. That's pretty sobering uh, testimony we hear. So let me uh, start off and recognize myself for five minutes. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Toole, you referred to this as a first-tier national security problem and that bioattacks are faster and fiercer. Um, so it seems like our nat these natural outbreaks, uh, they really are a test run for prevention, like how we handle Ebola, how we handle SARS, how we will handle the Zika virus. gives us an opportunity to work on prevention, detection, and responding. But I don't think we are at all where we need to be. So given that, is there reason to be more concerned or less concerned about the threats of bioterrorism? Mr. Chairman, I think you're right. I think um, our response to naturally occurring epidemics um, should be seen as test runs. Um, uh, everyone here has lived through a lot of natural epidemics at this point, and we have gotten better. Um, again, I think for the first time we can actually contemplate um, the strategy of creating a foundation such that we could rapidly design and build, for example, a vaccine suitable for a particular threat um, in a much shorter of time than there's now the case. Um, and I think we do have to prepare for a whole array of threats which we're not going to be able to predict. Um, the other issue um, that Dr. Shalala mentioned is that a lot of our response depends on the state and local public health departments. They have lost almost 50,000 people since, not, since 2008. Um, and so one could argue that our capacity to respond to an epidemic today has diminished compared to then. Thank and that's a problem. Thank you. Um, Secretary Shalala and Congressman Greenwood, would it be fair to say that your bipartisan panel's uh, general concern is that biological threats are increasing? while important aspects of the U.S. biodefense preparedness are actually declining or inadequate. Is that a proper conclusion, Ms. Shalala? Um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's fair. And to um, echo Dr. O'Toole, um, our infrastructure for dealing with these has gotten weaker, uh, starting with the state and local response. One of the things that we forgot in the Ebola 
uh, discussion is the states are our first line of defense. We've been putting resources and building the public health infrastructure for years with block grant, essentially block grants from the CDC. Those have been weakened. And if you don't have a state and local response, um, think about uh, the outbreak of uh, diseases caused by uh, food poisoning, for example. It's that infrastructure that is the first line of defense uh, for these uh, 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 for these biological uh, issues that we're talking about. If we don't have a strong state role with their laboratories, with their tracking systems, then it's very difficult for us to pick up um, something that's uh, that's going to recur that we know that's going to recur over a long period of time. That's why we talk about the vice president because. It's very difficult for anyone else to pull in all the actors, the private sector actors as well as the uh, public sector agency. Well, given these things, Mr. Uh, Chairman Greenwood, so as we have increasing number of these naturally occurring and accidentally occurring bio attacks, is our diminished capacity just because we're strained or because we have actually lost ground in dealing with these issues overall? Well, I think your original question, is the threat growing while the capacity to yes. defend against it is decreasing, is the answer to that question is absolutely yes. So if you think about the bioterror threat and you think about ISIS and you look at what they've been able to do uh, with rifles and, 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 and assault weapons and so forth, I mean, it's clear and it's obvious that their intention is to kill as many infidels and apostates as they possibly can. And you can do a heck of a lot better job at that using chemical and biological weapons than you can with conventional armaments. They want to do that. And there is evidence that's been cited, I think, already um, that, that they are trying to figure out how to use bubonic plague. Uh, they are trying to uh, – they tried to uh, have a plan to poison the, the, the Turkish water system. So the intention is clear. While that's happening, the, the same technology – uh, synthetic biology, gene editing, that is enabling our companies to do amazing things in terms of developing new, new drugs and, and new products, uh, is also making it um, easier to formulate these new weapons. And so the threat is growing. And to see that in the face of all of that, the federal government's commitment to funding BARDA, to funding our abilities to develop these countermeasures is diminishing, is, is frightening. I'm glad you're having this hearing now because the hearing you don't want to have is the one that happens after tens of thousands of people have lost their lives and you're sitting here asking yourselves and government officials why we weren't ready. Thank you. And that could happen any time. I see my time's up. I'll now recognize Ms. Deget for five minutes. Thank you very much. Mr. Greenwood, you're exactly right, and this is what keeps me up at night is, is – the responsibility that this subcommittee has to actually move the move the ball forward, not just to have these hearings every so often. And and the chairman will tell you, I I um I every year, like in about July, I start nagging to have a hearing on pandemic flu before we're actually in the middle of the flu season. But I I think what what the blue ribbon panel is saying is we need to go even further than that. We need to have a a system in place that's that's not based on response after the fact. Would that be your assessment too? Absolutely. And if, if I may, let me describe to you what that system is. Um, the only thing that stands between 
um, these pandemic uh, viruses and intentional bioterror attacks, the only thing that stands between those things and the safety of our people is frankly a handful of private companies in this country who are willing to um, take the risk of developing countermeasures. And as, as has been said, this is unique. You're not, you don't sell those countermeasures right. at Walmart. Right. The only p potential procurer of those is the federal government. And those companies, like every little biotech company, rely on investors. And those investors can put their money into a conventional biotech company. They can put it into an IT company. They can put it anywhere they want. They're looking for return on investment. Right. And if they see a system that's uncertain due to lack right. of, of a certainty that these products will be procured, they're going to put their money elsewhere. And, and we've really seen this in the pandemic influenza program and trying to, to, um, to prepare for that and with these cuts. So I'm wondering, maybe Secretary Shalala, you can talk about how the funding cuts have hampered a response to the potential pandemic flu outbreaks. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't underestimate, in addition to the private sector, those very fragile uh, uh, biotech companies, uh, the importance of the National Institutes of Health and the fundamental right. science that we're doing. Because if you don't have that, you wouldn't have the company. So it's, it's it a combination of things. Yeah, the problem is you need to get the basic research. You do and then it, and then it, and then you also need to have the robust pandemic flu program so that you can support development of the vaccine by the private company. So exactly. it really and is a partnership. And vaccines have not been a major priority of the multinational pharmaceutical companies. They don't make enough money from them. Right. There are marginals, particularly when the government is the only purchaser. Right. As was pointed out here, um, they don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to give them the kind of margins they can get from other kinds of investments. So. Um, this is a real challenge. L let me make one other point. Health as a national defense issue is relatively new. Twenty years ago, no one was thinking about na a national security issue related to um, some aspect of health. So think of this as the cutting edge of a dramatic new, um, uh, new conceptualization of our defense. We're actually talking about the defense of a nation and about the health aspect right. of that. Let, let, me, let, me, um, let me ask you, why, why is it that the panel recommends centralized leadership in the vice president's office to coordinate all of this? Mm -hmm. Well, um, since I sat in, in the major agency responsible for many of these issues, and since we now have a Homeland Security Agency, the fact is that the responsibilities for different aspects of this are spread across the government. And, and even the lead agency concept will not solve that. Or in my judgment, a czar sitting in the White House. The czars work best when there's an emergency. Right. But if you really want to build up the infrastructure, you have to have a powerful person. And you can't have that in a cabinet agency which is a peer of all the other cabinet agencies. So the vice president is the only person that can cut through that, talk to the private sector, and simultaneously talk to state and local governments um, and, and, and put all those pieces together. He's also the only person that can demand a unified budget out of the OMB and across the government. And, and this was a bipartisan re recommendation. It was a bipartisan recommendation. And I have to tell you, I hesitated as someone who sat in a government agency, a powerful government agency, I hesitate to transfer power to a vice president 
or to the White House in general. As you know, cabinet agencies have a certain amount of tension with, with White Houses. But at the end of the day, this is one of the areas where you need a unified budget. Now, the only other place we have a unified budget is actually uh, in intelligence. Uh, so this is a parallel to that, to pull all the pieces together. And it's important enough to identify the vice president. And vice presidents always have some time to take on other responsibilities. <laughs> Thank and you very much. Time, yeah. Thanks. With all Thank due respect to our very nice <laughs> vice president. I'm sure he'll be pleased. You said he had lots of time in his hands. Uh, we now recognize Mr. Fl we have we have discussed this with the current vice president, <laughs> but Thank it's you. not it's not he particularly that we identified, but the office itself. Right, right. We'll bring him in here and ask him about that. <laughs> recognize Mr. Flores for five minutes. Hard, hard to follow that, um, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Parker. You emphasized in your testimony that we should be urgently preparing for biological threats in the time between outbreaks and. In 2006, as you know, Congress created BARDA to do exactly this. But uh, as you explained, uh, we continue to seem to go in crisis mode only when we have an outbreak. So what else should the government do in these, these um, inter-epidemic periods? Well, thank you, Congressman Flores. And actually, um, uh, I, I, in, in answering your, your question, I'm going to come right back to the centralized leadership and why import, how important that is. And I'll, I'll answer it actually with an example. Um, in my own experience and my own career, and, and that very same time in 2006, um, as the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act was, was passed, BARDA was created, um, we got very concerned about uh, pandemic influenza to the point that um, an emergency supplemental was appropriated in that time, six, seven billion dollars. It was accompanied by a very strong White House-led pandemic influenza strategy coupled to a pandemic influenza implementation plan. This is the closest example I think that has happened to date that re kind of reflects the, the centralized leadership biodefense strategy that we actually did for pandemic influenza that accompanied an appropriation that really covered almost all the department agencies, state, local, private sector that were involved in pandemic preparedness back at that time. This implementation plan contained over 300 action items. It identified lead department agencies and supporting department agencies. It was very detailed. In fact, in my own department at the time, HHS, um, there was a lot of complaints that it was micromanaging and maybe superseding department authorities. Maybe it was, but we got stuff done. It allowed us to accomplish things that otherwise we would not have been able to do. And so that I just offer that as an example of something that we've already done. Oh, let me also add that we had to we were very responsible for meeting our milestones and metrics that were part of this implementation plan, both in the executive branch and to Congress, because all congressional committees that had the appropriate oversight for their department agencies were regularly being up, updated. Hearings were happening on progress of that plan. So I, did, I just offer that up as an example of something in the past that I think is in the spirit of what the panel has recommended 
that would um, drive us a long way forward to doing what we need to do in that inter-epidemic period and before an attack occurs. Thank you. I think that's helpful. Also, I want to compliment you on the great work that you're doing in the, in the uh, border public-private partnership. Uh, Dr. O'Toole, the World Health Organization recently assessed that the potential impact of synthetic biology on smallpox preparedness and control, and uh, the WHO scientific group found that the risk of reemergence of smallpox is increased due to the low cost and widespread, of widespread availability of technology and know-how on how to create the smallpox virus. So the BRSP uh, relied hev or focused heavily on the threats that we face today. Uh, can you tell me what's possible given the rapid advances in th synthetic biology and how have these advances in synthetic biology escalated the threat? Uh, virtually anything is possible today, theoretically. Uh, smallpox is an ancient, huge virus. It would be right. very difficult to create synthetically a functional smallpox virus. Um, there are many other choices available. Um, we know, for example, that the Soviets created a vaccine-resistant plague strain. Um, new gene editing techniques make that kind of um, uh, creation of resistant viruses um, quite straightforward, um, although non-resistant pathogens can do a great deal of damage, too. I'm not sure it makes sense to go to the, to the trouble of uh, making a synthetic bug. But what we are missing is the opportunities on the upside that synthetic biology and other advances allow, right. okay? I mean, we are in a revolutionary phase of biological science, and virtually none of this is being leveraged against our biodefense needs. We need a lot more than improved uh, contracting procedures in BARDA. We need a commitment to revolutionize the way we make vaccines. Uh, same thing with diagnostics. We can do this. We can shift the advantage to biodefense, but we can't do this with incremental, you know, tweaks on the programs we have now, in my opinion. We need a much deeper investment in bioscience and biotech. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. I've ex thank exhausted my time. I yield back. Thank you. Now recognize Mr. Tonko for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair, and welcome to our uh, witnesses. The, um, Dr. O'Toole. In your testimony, you speak of the need to um, take advantage of recent developments in bioscience to rapidly develop, test, and manufacture vaccines against emergent uh, infectious diseases. Can you speak to the role that the Centers uh, for Innovation and Advanced Development uh, and Technology play in this process? And is this program indicative of the types of public-private partnerships we uh, should be pursuing in this space? I'm sorry. Centers for Innovation in Advanced Development and Technology. Yes, they can play a very critical role. For example, new diagnostics have a very difficult time um, getting approval to be paid for. So that discourages uh, innovative biotech companies from making them. Imagine the difference it would make if we had a rapid diagnostic test right now for Zika. And we could very clearly say, you're infected, what is the outcome of your pregnancy? Or you're not infected. Same thing for Ebola. Imagine if we were able to tell within minutes if somebody was infected with Ebola, preferably before they're symptomatic. The technologies for a whole host of new diagnostics are out there. 
the path to making money on them is very, very troubled, both from a regulatory point of view, it's almost as hard as it is to get a new drug through, and the return on investment is not nearly as great, and also from the payment mechanism. So yes, the centers have a tremendous role to play. Thank you. And Secretary Shalala, um, how does the, uh, the first recommendation uh, that you've shared with us today get off the, uh, off the ground? Should there be a congressional mandate to have the executive branch uh, explore and implement if, it, if um, experts agree it's needed? Uh, what are the next steps to uh, take us forward? You know, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, whether um, Congress can designate the Vice President of the United States as the different branch. You certainly could make a recommendation in this area, and um, I think the fact that this committee would make a recommendation as part of a, a more integrated uh, piece of, uh, of authorizing legislation would have an effect. Um, it is a new recommendation. Uh, if you look through all the other commission reports, this is the first time this has been elevated to this level. So I think both a combination of the visibility and some enthusiasm from Congress, from this committee in particular, um, would convince uh, the next President of the United States to look at it very seriously. Um, and of course, there are budget implications in that, particularly tying it to an integrated budget approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, which uh, I think we all think is extremely important and in which there have been very few examples at a very high level. Uh, probably intelligence is, is the, the major one, the defense kinds of ones, um, you know, the defense agency itself usually leads. So um, uh, it would take uh, some identification by this committee, I think, that would make a difference. Congressman, can I give you 15 seconds sure. on that? Sure. I, I think I'm not a lawyer, let alone a constitutional lawyer, but I think that the, that the Congress can provide the authorization to the Vice President, uh, and then perhaps it's, it's up to the President and the Vice President to decide to utilize that authorization, but I think that's probably the way it would work. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. And uh, Secretary Shalala, given the complications created by transferring technology from an innovator company to the centers for innovation and advanced development and technology, do you believe it would be beneficial to establish a single location wherein the complete process from innovation to uh, manufacture uh, can take place quickly and nimbly in order to rapidly respond to uh, the various emerging threats? You know, periodic periodically um, the leaders of government both on both parties have looked at that process and seen whether we can fast track it. Um, so that we can get products faster to market. Um, there are so, there's so many jurisdictional issues. Uh, if a product has to go through the FDA process, for example, um, if it's exempted uh, from the FDA process. So um, I think that that's an example where a vice president uh, looking at the process and making recommendations about the integration because it's a piece of the larger strategy where that would make a difference. We certainly did that when we looked at, um, during my time, when we looked at fast-tracking AIDS drugs, for example. And we were able to take different elements and, and put them together uh, in a way that protected safety, but also um, moved uh, uh, the needle very quickly uh, in that area. But that's why 
because there are so many agencies of jurisdiction, uh, you need someone to think it through. Thank you to each of you. And uh, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. I now recognize Ms. Brooks for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our esteemed panel uh, for being here today. Um, I was a U.S. attorney in 2001 and was part of the response in the anthrax attacks and actually had an office where that powder was sent to, you know, multiple government offices were receiving powder, which you know, terrified that employee who opened the mail, not knowing if it was actually anthrax or if it was just powder. Um, and I have to tell you, I thought you know, I was in federal service until 07 and, you know, felt like we were moving forward. But I have to tell you, until this report came out and until we've seen kind of the lack of adequate response to Ebola, quite frankly, I really do believe we have stepped back and that we have uh, just moved from crisis to crisis. But I just encourage my colleagues, this is an outstanding report with 33 recommendations. It is a roadmap. It is a blueprint. Um, and it is in part on the basis upon which Congresswoman Eshoo and I introduced uh, 3299, the Strengthening Public Health Emergency Response Act of 2015. And I want to talk about that because um, I really appreciate all of these recommendations. I encourage my colleagues um, throughout Congress to read this book because you as experts talk to experts around the country as well. Um, it's not just the people on the panel. A lot of work went into this, so I commend your work. Um, Mr. Greenwood, um, can you please share with us the merit that you see in returning the contracting authority to BARDA, back to BARDA, which is in my bill, and can you talk about the importance of that and what has happened and why we're not able to get, you know, vaccines and our medical countermeasures through the pipeline as fast as we need them? Well, thank you. The, uh, the originally the contracting authority was with BARDA, and it was changed. It was moved to. I'm going to refer to my notes here. It was removed. It was moved to the um, office, an office called the Acquisitions Management Contracts and Grants Office. And the problem is that the the technical experts uh, are not there, and and they are in fact at BARDA. And in fact, because of, of certain um, uh, uh, regulations, um, there's, a, there's a firewall between the two, and sometimes they c actually cannot speak to one another. So this is, a, imagine how frustrating it is for a company trying to get a contract, uh, and it's talking to a folks who, are, who know a lot about contracts, but they don't know a lot about this issue, about ca medical countermeasures. And so uh, I think it's, it makes all the sense in the world to, to eliminate that level of bureaucracy, put the contracting back at BARDA where it belongs so that the, the experts in the field can talk to the experts in the company with whom they are attempting to uh, create contracts. Thank you. And with respect to the companies trying to get vaccines into our stockpiles, can you and Dr. Shalala please talk about the fact that we don't have a sufficient coordinating mechanism in our national strategic stockpile also identified? So we don't even have, if I'm not mistaken, the right coordination between CDC and BARDA to have the right vaccines in our stockpile. Can you talk about that? Yes, and we made recommendations in that regard uh, because the system is weak now and uh, needs to be strengthened. And uh, uh, thank you, Congresswoman, for your leadership on this issue as well. Thank you. Mr. Greenwood, any comments with well, respect I think to the stockpile? It goes to the central point, uh, which is that, this, that we are uh, th 
that we are not organized as a government to effectively and, and quickly respond to either pandemics or bioterror because the authorities are diffuse, they don't always talk to one another, uh, and that's, that is exactly why a, a, a central unified plan, a strategic plan, a central budget, and giving the authority to the vice president makes all the sense. And I think uh, citizens believe and know we have these stockpiles um, and believe that they are adequately uh, that they are adequately filled with the proper rights of the types of vaccines. Would anyone else like to comment on our national strategic stockpile? Dr. O'Toole. Um, I, I'm the chair of a National Academy Committee on the Strategic National Stockpile right now. And uh, they have made tremendous progress in the last 20 years. The problem with the stockpile is that the new drugs that are going into it are largely biologicals, and they're very expensive, and they expire in two and three years. Mm -hmm. So there is a pipeline of new countermeasures coming in that increases inexorably the cost of the stockpile, and everybody's budget is staying flat. So the limitations on the um, countermeasures we have in the stockpile, first of all, are budgetary limitations. I mean, this is an expensive proposition. A stockpile already holds about $7 billion worth of stuff. But we're talking about having to cover multiple cities with these sometimes very expensive drugs and vaccines. We need a cheaper way to do it, which is why I say you're never going to be able to create a stockpile that has everything you want in it against every contingency. We have to move to a strategy of being able to quickly design and manufacture at scale what we need. Thank you all for sounding the alarm. Appreciate your leadership. I yield back. Thank you. Now recognize Mr. Mullen for five minutes. I still need it first. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Chairman, and, and thank you for the witnesses for, for being here. Uh, I first want to thank Mr. Or Ms. Shalele, I hope I say that right, and Mr. Greenwood for this report. I will tell you the more that I learn about it, um, the more I wish I wouldn't uh, read it. I, I'm serious. It's very uh, troubling when you understand uh, the false security that we have, even from something as simple yet dangerous as the flu to the most serious threats that we're facing today. And in a previous hearing, I, uh, I was talking about our CDC's national stockpile, strategic stockpile that we have, and, and in particular, the weaknesses that we have there. And following Ms. Brooks here, I, I want to get a little bit more in depth about what you see as maybe our biggest weakness, maybe the biggest two weaknesses, some of the most, some of the biggest threats we have with the stockpile, some recommendations. Don't get into it too deep, just maybe one or two that we can start working on in, in, a com in the committee here. Well, I actually think Dr. O'Toole is the expert on the, spot, on the stockpile uh, issue um, uh, and that she has outlined what the challenges are in the stockpile. It doesn't cover everything. It's expensive to maintain because um, they have a sh short shelf life. It was a good idea at the time, but um, constantly having to renew it uh, is, um, is our biggest challenge. There, I think that most of us think that there are other issues uh, we can address. Um, we certainly, um, and certainly scientific issues that would give us a longer life in some of these uh, areas. And um, I think on the production side, uh, Tara, 
uh, our ability to produce something faster um, and not being totally dependent on the stockpile is probably where your um, your, your IOM commission was going. You know, and yesterday I had a meeting with a with some biodefense individuals, and they were telling me that you know there is technology they're looking at that would extend the life of the, the shelf life through maybe a dry freeze. Is that correct? Uh, and and then also they're retesting it too, and some of it that was designed it'll go two or three years, as last as long as 15 years. So they're constantly retesting it. But how do we dispense it? How do we get it out? Having it in a stockpile is okay, but it doesn't do us any good if it's housed one place and we can't get it to where it's needed. Uh, one uh, of our recommendations was to use the existing community pharmacies. The original idea was to use the VAs because they're spread across the country. And they do keep a certain amount of supply, and they're, the VA right they're well located, the right. VA hospital uh, system and warehouse system. Um, the government has also contracted with, I think, with FedEx, move pallets around the country. And the reason for that is because the military is not well situated to do that kind of thing. So there has been extensive discussions in the government and a strategy for moving pallets of drugs uh, very quickly using. I think the contract was with the FedEx system uh, originally to move uh, pallets uh, uh, around the country um, when there are outbreaks. Ms. O'Toole? Um, the big problem with the stockpile is traversing what's called the last mile. It's not about delivering the stockpile to the state public health departments. It's about getting it into the hands of people. And as you can imagine, that dispensing function is very complex. Washington State is going through pharmacies. Not That won't work in every state, particularly rural states, although most Americans live within reach of a pharmacy. Um, advanced deployment is also being used in those very few states that can move very, very quickly to dispense, such as New York City. Um, one thing that would definitely help is more money for state health departments and local health departments to do drills on dispensing. These are invaluable, but they're very time-consuming and expensive, and they simply don't have the money to do them. Uh, New York City does them. Some of the big municipalities do them. But making those um, a more viable um, way to practice would, I think, make an appreciable difference. That's a great recommendation. Mr. Parker, Dr. Parker. Yeah, I just wanted to come back. Wh everything you're asking actually really comes back to centralized leadership. We've been talking about liabilization of vaccines for 15 years or more. Um, the, the last mile of dispensing medical countermeasures from our SNS, that is the hardest challenge. In fact, there was an executive order in about 20, uh, 2009, uh, 20, 2010, and I was just discussing this with a, one of my colleagues from public health uh, from Chicago yesterday. It seems that, that that work has just disappeared. But with centralized leadership, uh, uh, focused work on how to solve that last mile of actually dispensing the medical countermeasures um, would go on. And we need that because it's one thing to have a stockpile with Cipro and tetracycline, and it's one thing to be able to get it FedEx to get it to a, a, an urban center. But actually getting it into people's hands is a huge unsolved problem. Thank you. I'm out of time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now we recognize Ms. Castor for five minutes. I'm going to scoot over. Well, good morning, and thank you to the panel for your terrific work on this important subject. And uh, Ms. Shalala, the folks at the University of Miami are uh, we're so appreciative, and everyone across the country for your service. I know they miss you. 
uh, there, but it's great to see that you continue on in your, uh, your service. Uh, I wanted to focus on hospital preparedness. During the um, Ebola outbreak in Africa in 2014, we took a critical look at hospital preparedness and its important role in our nation's response to biological events. At that time, in response to that, the president requested an emergency supplemental funding for Ebola. Uh, the Congress responded. Uh, now with Zika, we're having to do that again. Uh, this doesn't seem to be the most efficient way to prepare for, uh, for emergencies. Uh, I'd like to ask a few questions about this, about what we can do to assist hospitals throughout the country in their response. Uh, you know, we had some that were very well prepared, like Emory University, what a terrific job they did because of their association with the CDC. And NIH, of course, was at the forefront uh, in that Ebola response, but some did not do quite as well. And there's no mystery that if, if that had been more serious, that a lot of uh, hospitals across the country would have struggled. So what lessons do you think we learned from this, uh, from the Ebola out, uh, outbreak in Africa and the few cases that were uh, that came to the U.S.? I'd like to ask maybe uh, Ms. O'Toole first. <coughs> Hospital preparedness is very important. I think um, between 2002 and um, 2008, it did improve for two reasons. First of all, disaster response drills are required for accreditation by JACO, by the hospital accrediting facility. Um, again, for hospitals, doing those kinds of drills is expensive and difficult. Um, there also was a CDC HHS um, flow of money to hospitals um, to help them with bioterrorism and pandemic flu preparedness. And what happened with that money is the hospital started forming coalitions. In my city in 2001, Baltimore, the mayor for the first time got all the CEOs of the hospitals together in one room. This is a private sector competitive industry. They don't necessarily cooperate, let alone collaborate. And those CDC funds made a real difference. Uh, these regional coalitions of hospitals uh, grew used to figuring out how they were going to share resources, share information, et cetera, et cetera. That funding has been cut in half mm -hmm. since 2010. That makes a big difference. Uh, Secretary Shalala, the panel's report mentions that, that disease-specific preparedness funding is the most inefficient and costly manner in which to fund preparedness. Uh, what are the alternatives to disease-specific programs, especially since many states have uh, frayed their public, public health infrastructure? How can we uh, respond better and, and give the hospitals and our local communities the tools they need? We have uh, specific recommendations in this area, including a steady stream of, of funding. We recommend that it be done through the accreditation system and through CMS. In addition to that, uh, we've recommended a tiered system. Every hospital in this country cannot be prepared for every complex disease. So um, both the regional coordination, but more importantly, identifying those hospitals that can have special rooms set aside. Um, in Florida, for example, um, all of us looked at, um, particularly at, uh, at the great public hospital in Miami, 
whether we could build separate rooms with separate access to handle Ebola patients, and in fact went through an exercise to make that possible. Uh, a great public hospital that sees all sorts of diseases uh, probably is the best place to do that, as well as um, academic hospitals around the country. So creating a tiered system in which we know where we would send patients once they're stabilized, obviously, uh, that would have the capacity and the separation to be able to handle uh, these diseases um, is certainly the way to go. We have some specific recommendations both on funding, on the accreditation process, but in particular on creating a, um, a tiered system uh, in this country that would give us coverage across the country um, uh, as there are outbreaks. I think that's a very important recommendation, and I would uh, encourage the committee to act on it as soon as possible. Thank, Thank you, you very much. I recognize Mr. Kramer for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the panelists. And I'm going to, I want to focus on this incentive issue, um, Congressman, that you've raised. And, and I will admit right up front that what I'm about to do is very dangerous. I want to think out loud for a little bit. And then I also admit that we're, you're not going to adequately, um, you're not going to adequately inform and educate me in five minutes. So you're going to have to come to my office and help me work through this idea. Because you've all done a great job, as has the, the panel, uh, the Blue Ribbon panel, in, in scaring me to death. So, no, so I'm adequately prepared uh, to understand the threat, um, and I think that's very important. But in our political world, of course, when it comes to the, to the appropriations process, um, part, of, part of why I think you don't see Congress acting or the government acting proactively is because we respond to the people we represent. And, um, they will blame us when we're not prepared, and they'll blame us when we spent money foolishly. And of course, we're talking about finding a way to invest in something that we hope is never needed. And so that's our political dilemma. I would, if, if starting with you, Congressman Greenwood, and, and others, if you want to weigh in, maybe just elaborate a little more on the SRF, the PRV, how how we could help pharmaceuticals the private sector um, feel comfortable with investment and the innovation, and, and you, we've talked a fair bit about it, but if there's, if, if there's a way we could elaborate just a little bit more to help me better understand how we're going to do this. And, and I might also emphasize, is there, is there a way to do put a cost-benefit analysis on this? For example, Ms. Castor was talking about emergency responding. That's a cost. That's, that's a cost that, it, that could be avoided, perhaps, if we are better prepared, right? Is, so has there been some work done in that arena that helps me assure my constituents that we're not just um, appropriating, but that we're, we're efficiently and effectively governing? Well, um, thank you for admitting that we frightened you. <laughs> um, and obviously, our constituents, your constituents, are not clamoring for this because uh, it's a sleeper. Yes. No one, no one is thinking that this is going to happen. And as I said earlier, the hearing you don't want to have is the one uh, about why we were unprepared for the event that was so tragic. So, so I think to some extent, you know, leadership involves informing your constituents, and this hearing is an important part of that. That this threat is real. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I calculate when it comes to bioterror that you know, th they have the, 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 the terrorists have the motive. They're trying to acquire the means. Uh, and despite our best efforts to deflect that, um, over time, 
the likelihood of that happening is one over one. Okay, it's going to happen, mm -hmm. and we have to be we have to believe that it's not. We have to believe that that that's the threat is real. So in terms of what works um, to be prepared, um, we talked about the the contracting ref reform, which is a, a minor thing but an important thing. And the, the Congresswoman Brooks is the leader on that. Uh, we've talked about the need for there to be sufficient funding to actually procure these MCMs when they're developed. And it's, it's um, the, the Secretary was completely correct when she said not to underestimate basic research at the NIH, that's critical. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, just like in every other medical uh, medicine that we develop, when it comes to actually developing the product and manufacturing the product, that's private sector is the only place where that is done. Mm -hmm. And to invest money in that, uh, the companies are willing to take the risk that maybe they will fail at the science, but the investors are not willing to take the risk that if they succeed, the federal government's not going to be prepared to, to reward them by, by procuring the product. So that's critical, and you need enough money uh, and o money over time to be certain. So there's a certainty that when you get to the end of the road and you get your product approved, that Congress hasn't moved the money around and it's no longer there. Mm -hmm. Secretary Shalala, I, I can see you may want to weigh in on this, but one of the things I appreciate that your um, national defense analogy, because I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, we, we, we spend billions of dollars on weapons we hope we never use, right? Now, they do have the benefit of being a deterrent, understandably, but um, but it isn't dissimilar. We have to constantly make this case. So uh, I thank you for that and, and, and the centralized leadership as well. I'm, I'm still struggling with the whole vice president thing m myself, but um, the more you talk about, the more sense it makes. Uh, so I appreciate that. Is there anything else anybody would add to the to, to what the Congressman has said about the, the yeah, investment. Yeah, I, I would like to, uh, to add a little bit and perhaps maybe just pull on the contracting itself uh, as well. As we've heard, many of the companies in this space that are really contributing to, to biodefense and particularly those that are bringing the more innovative solutions um, are struggling themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, the typical FAR-based government contracting is really contrary to the biotechnology industry in and of itself. And so I would think, you know, I've actually been encouraged recently with some pronouncements by DOD uh, to begin to start using some authorities they already have, like other transactions authorities. So I think just also taking a look at what, what are uh, other things and just the basics of contracting that could make it um, – more readily accessible that the innovative biotechnology companies would actually do business with us in the government is something to look at as well. Thank sir. you very much. If we could solve DOD contracting in the context of this, that would be a bonus. That would be a cost-benefit analysis worth doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Recognize now Mr. Green of Texas for five minutes. If we could solve the DOD contracting, we could probably have them audited. <laughs> I want to welcome our panel here. Um, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense highlighted vulnerabilities in our ability to combat emerging and reemerging infectious diseases, particularly drug-resistant infections, which could cause catastrophic loss of life and have already started to make even minor infections fatal. Without greater investment in antibiotics, we face a future that resembles the days before these miracle drugs were developed, one in which people died of common infections, many medical advancements we take for granted become impossible, including surgery, chemotherapy, and organ transplantation. The challenges presented by the rise of drug-resistant bacteria for which we have no effective treatments are represented the challenge facing medical countermeasure product development. 
the market forces simply do not work and fail to foster the kind of pipeline we need in two thousand and twelve this committee passed and congress passed the gain act and again this in this current session in the twenty first century cures act we work to remove the financial and regulatory barriers to antibody drug development secretary shalala can you elaborate on the studies recommendation for incentivizing the development of medical countermeasures for emerging infectious diseases with pandemic potential specifically please explain why there is such a need for a government to play a leadership role in this space well i think it's pretty straightforward that the only purchaser will be the government there's not a private sector market for these particular biologicals and therefore the government both has to incentivize the companies financially so that and and i think the other thing to understand jim can explain this better than i can these are relatively small companies often with a small number of products we've known a lot about the biotech industry they're fragile i like to use the word fragile when you talk about them so that unless they know that they're going to be compensated and reimbursed for the cost of development not just the cost of production but the cost of development unless there are financial incentives i don't know how we're going to move very quickly in this area we've had some experience congressman waxman in the orphan drug act we had a lot of we had a lot of diseases in which there were very small markets at least initially and and the congress in its wisdom passed legislation that encourage companies to invest in creating drugs and treatments for a very small part of the population our problem here is we start small but we may need a production line that's huge at the end of the day i don't know any other way to do it except with financial incentives we just i just don't know i think everything that we've learned it's not just that i'm a capitalist it's just that from the from our point of view at a public policy issue when the market is going to be the government there is no other way to get a very small number of industry people to invest unless they know there's going to be a market at the end of the day jim and again welcome back to your committee thank you congress so nice to see you they one of the proposals we have is the priority review voucher prv and the beauty of it and if you look at congress and its wisdom looked at neglected tropical diseases and and we knew that there's no financial pull that these diseases that occur in places like africa the countries are so poor that they really can't afford to buy the the product so investors just aren't putting their money there when congress created priority review voucher it works beautifully because what it does is it says to a company if i can get a drug approved even if I don't make enough return on my investment from the procurement of that of that of that product, another maybe a large biopharmaceutical company will pay me. And these things have gone; there are only two or three of them that sold, but they go gone for two hundred million, three hundred million, four hundred million dollars. It doesn't cost the taxpayers a penny. You know, Pfizer or Merck or Glaxo, somebody buys that, which just simply gives them a foreshortened review period for some other product. 
And that doesn't cost the taxpayers any money either. It just, it, uh, they pay their PDUFA fee, they get their product approved, and sometimes they don't get their product approved. But if they do, it gets approved a little faster, it gets on the market, and by the way, then it goes off patent sooner anyway. So it, it still doesn't uh, have any cost to society. Mr. Chairman, I know I'm out of time, but we have legislation that's in the Senate and uh, that would fast track because we recognize the government's going to be the one that has to do it because uh, the free enterprise can't invest that money for something. But, uh, but there is legislation. Hopefully the Senate will deal with cures and, and the complete package that our full committee uh, approved overwhelmingly. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That would be nice. Recognize uh, uh, Ms. the Bites Chair of the Full Committee. Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Well, Ms. Blackburn. Yeah, that woman from Tennessee. I, t I tell you what, Dr. Parker, I am so happy to see an Aggie on the panel. I've got Aggies in my family, and uh, they always bring good common sense seasoned wisdom to the table. So happy to see you there. and. Of course, Mr. Greenwood, and um, how much we appreciate your insights on this and your dedication uh, to the biotechnologies and the work that, uh, that you've done there. Just a couple of things that I, I want to touch base on. Um, in talking with some of my research centers, and in Tennessee we have such an aggressive biotechnology group. And when I was in the state senate, I helped to formulate that group. And so they've got a good underpinning. And it doesn't matter if it's Vanderbilt or St. Jude's or whatever. They talk to me a good bit about the right balance between government and regulatory oversight and then the ability to incent. And Mr. Greenwood, I'm so pleased that you just mentioned the priority review voucher for the MCMs. I just think this is, when you look at these medical countermeasures, that is just so important that we have that. And it doesn't matter if it is a material threat, um, if it is something like Zika, we have to have a way to go about this. But I want to come to something that uh, Dr. O'Toole mentioned, and then Congressman Greenwood, if you will kind of answer to that. Basically, her point was you move products to a point of scalability, and then if you need something, you're ready to move with it, and can push that scalability quickly. So let's go back to that voucher. Mr. Greenwood, and if you'll continue that conversation and kind of build that up, the importance of that, how you would address these for something that is a material threat, or like the Zika virus, which right now there is not a vaccine, and people are saying, what are you going to do? Why didn't you know this was a problem? The Olympics are coming to Brazil. People have been vacationing for months in the zone that is affected, et cetera. Uh, so let's go back to the important of having that priority review process for such, for this type of occurrence. So there's great uncertainty for a company to, we've seen our companies uh, proudly jumping into the Zika uh, issue and trying to, to, to do some research on it very quickly to develop products. But I remember a company that, that a member company of Bio, uh, that was involved in trying to, it looked like it was close to having something on Ebola. 
and they almost didn't want to talk about it because their stock was fluctuating like this. The, all of a sudden, everybody would invest in that company, and then another company was doing something, and people would pull out, and, and it created unpredictability and volatility. And so um, it, it's, an, it's an example of how um, the, normal, the norms of economics don't work in this field always. So the priority uh, review voucher takes away um, one of the uncertainties, and that uncertainty is that it, it doesn't take away the uncertainty of can we make this product, and will it be safe, and will it be effective? <coughs> That's always a risk, and I will tell you that doing that is harder than putting a man on the moon. You know, most companies fail, and most projects fail. So it's hugely risky to even bother trying. But if you do try, and you do succeed, um, you ha the, the only reason your investors are, are, are giving you the leeway to go and do that is because they think that somehow they'll get their a return, a fair return on that investment. One way to do that is to have enough money in the in the reserve fund so that so that the, the, the and have it there not just year by year, but have it there in multiple years so the companies can know and their investors can know when we if we succeed here, they'll buy the product and we'll we'll get our investment back. But the priority voucher review is an uh, is, is an entirely different way to do that, and because they have become so valuable. It, it is a huge driver. It's a huge incentive because if you can succeed, let's say that right now we had a, a priority review voucher for Zika, right? Companies would know that if they su could succeed and if they, not only would they have the great satisfaction of be able to being able to spare people from this disease and, and God forbid more children born with uh, microencephaly, um, but that they would have this voucher they could then take to the marketplace and sell it at a, at a very nice uh, return. Um, and use that money to uh, to invest in the next um, countermeasure. Okay. So I, th I think it's a it's a, it's a, it's a no-brainer to me. Uh, I know that there's some there's some um, political uh, um, questions about it, but I don't think there should be because it costs the taxpayers nothing, it costs society nothing, and it provides nothing but benefit. Thank you. Thank you. Yield back. Gentlemen, uh, yield back, and now recognize Dr. Burgess of Texas for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to our panelists for being here today. I apologize for missing part of the hearing. Uh, we're having our budget season. Mr. Greenwood, you'll remember what that is like. Um, so never a dull moment around here today. Um, Dr. O'Toole, I just want to ask you, because we've had several hearings over the past several years. And I just want just for context, my congressional career goes from SARS now to Zika, uh, long enough for people back home to say term limits, but on the other hand, there may be some value in seeing some of this stuff over a continuum. But you reference in your testimony about the what are called laboratory-developed tests, and Zika, boy, it comes into focus because, okay, you got a polymerase chain reaction, but only a few places can do it. It's pretty, pretty valuable, pretty accurate but it's hard to get. You've got to go through a health department to get it. Uh, there's an IgM antibody, but it will cross-react with some other viruses, so you're not really sure if your result is, is accurate. But uh, would you just speak to the regulatory hurdles that you describe in your testimony and laboratory-developed tests? Because we in this committee have been studying that. There is a movement, as you may be aware, to move the regulation of laboratory-developed tests from CLIA, the Clinical Lab Improvement Amendment, which is basically administered through Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, 
over into the Food and Drug Administration and require the basically the licensing of laboratory-developed tests just as if they were a new drug or device, and we know the problems with the timeline of, of those things. So could you just speak to that briefly? Yes, thank you for the question, uh, Congressman. First of all, the reason FDA is so concerned about diagnostics, diagnostics is that they can have life or death consequences. And we might want to think about different standards for diagnostics during public health emergencies. Yes, I'm going to interrupt you for a minute. That is called clinical judgment, and you and I understand that because we trained as physicians, and that, that has to be part of the equation. Um, it took me three years to get from Dr. Sharon at the FDA a list of the problems that he was worried about with the development of laboratory-developed tests. Where are where are the outliers? Where are the problems? Now, the to his credit, the last time he was in here a few months ago, he did produce a list of 20 tests that he said this, uh, these may be problematic. But there are 11,000 laboratory-developed tests out there, and they are useful every day of the week in a clinician's office. So I'm sorry, but continue. So um, let me narrow the problem down to uh, tests that we need for infectious disease, and particularly during epidemics, okay? And we need a variety of different kinds of tests. As you know, you want a very sensitive test when uh, you have a low prevalence, but you don't want that same test when you're in the middle of an epidemic. So it gets tricky. However, here's the problem. It's very difficult to validate a new diagnostic against Ebola or even Zika if you don't have curated samples of those diseases. In my view, the government, you can put this in DOD, you can put it in HHS, you can put it in FDA, the government should develop a curated bank of uh, diseases about which we are worried so that companies, especially these small, agile, fragile companies, could come and test their diagnostics against them so that they could much more rapidly um, give FDA useful data on how well their test works. That's one. Secondly, I think just as FDA has emergency use rules for medical countermeasures during uh, public health emergencies, we ought to think about emergency use rules for diagnostics, which I think we can actually create rather rapidly and manufacture quickly. Uh, during public yeah, I, I will just tell you, last year or 18 months ago during the, the peak of the Ebola outbreak in September, I went to a hearing at the Foreign Affairs Committee where we heard that the FDA had actually put a clinical hold on, I think, a drug called TK Ebola that was uh, at that time in use in, in treating patients with Ebola. I mean, I didn't want to hear about clinical holds. I wanted to hear about clinical trials. So it really did seem like they were an obstacle faced with this worldwide scourge. Dr. Shalala, I just need to ask you a quick question on your, uh, and, and I just so appreciate your listing out the recommendations of the Blue Ribbon Task Force. Um, in my political training, which granted was uh, a, a street level course, um, I was sort of taught that you only do three things. <clears throat> if you produce a list of 33 things, uh, no one listens to you after the third one. But I did read through your list, and it, it is a good list. It's an exhaustive. I hope it's not static because one of the things that we've worked on on the 21st Century Cures Bill is the whole issue of interoperability of electronic health records. And if we do not address that fact 
in this uh, in the recommendations that that you have. Uh, I think that's actually going to stymie the the ability for researchers and clinicians to communicate rapidly, de-identify data to be sure, uh, respect patient privacy rights, but at the same time, we need to have that ability for rapid learning within the system, whatever whatever develops. Well, as you know, there's been a lot of progress on electronic uh, medical records uh, in this country and continues to be proud of, uh, and you're absolutely right, it's the, it's the touchstone piece. Um, I should say that even though we have 33 recommendations, we have actually staggered them uh, to uh, identify those that we think Congress should uh, do immediately um, that have more of a midterm value and a longer term uh, strategy. So we, we very carefully um, laid out a strategy that uh, would be workable uh, for Congress. Thanks, and and the Thanks. federal agencies at the same time. These are not just recommendations for Congress. Very Thanks. good. I yield back. Thank you. Gentleman yields back. Now recognize Mr. Bilirakis for five minutes. Thank you uh, for allowing me to sit in on this very important hearing. Uh, as the former chairman of the Emergency Preparedness and Response Communications Subcommittee for Homeland Security, uh, I, uh, I recognize the need for the country to be proactive, not just reactive to a host of biological threats, both natural and man-made. I'm glad that I can continue to be involved uh, in the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, so I appreciate uh, being given the opportunity to sit in on this subcommittee. Uh, Secretary Shalala, earlier you mentioned that the state and local agencies are the first in line of defense against outbreaks and attacks. You also said that much of their funding through block grant programs has been weakened. What should we do to enable state and local entities to be prepared to respond to outbreaks or attacks? Is there enough of a focus on medical surge uh, capacity and mass uh, prophylaxis uh, capabilities? Do we need flexibility in our grant programs? Could you turn your microphone on, please? Yeah, the microphone. Turn your microphone on, please. Uh, we've lost uh, 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 50,000 um, public health employees uh, in our states and local governments uh, as well, and uh, that has to be properly funded. The tradition has been to have almost a block grant that goes from CDC to the states. I believe in that tradition. I believe in the relationship between the CDC and states and local governments to build an infrastructure because they the CDC is not a line agency. Um, when we're in an emergency, we think they are, but it's really the states and the local governments uh, and their public health departments that are responsible for both the tracking, the identification um, uh, for all of us uh, in this country. And uh, um, we have to make sure that infrastructure the states are under great fiscal pressure in this country, and we have to make sure that infrastructure is beefed up that stays in place. Thank you. 
Next question is for the panel. You all mentioned that the lack of comprehensive biodefense strategy and the need for uh, centralized leadership. What, if any, protocol is in place now to enable coordination between the agencies such as DHS, CDC, HHS, and various state agencies when there is a disease outbreak? And what capability gaps exist in coordinating efforts between agencies? What makes coordination a challenge? We could start with the Secretary. Well, I think um, uh, earlier I talked about uh, the fact that there were multiple agencies that are involved when we have an outbreak like this. And while HHS has very strong responsibilities and has the scientific um, and public health expertise, Homeland Security, the Defense Department, I mean, there are all sorts of agencies across the board. And we have made a very strong recommendation that the Vice President be the ongoing coordinator. Um, in, um, in this country because the lead agency concept no longer works when you have various jurisdictions uh, involved, and in particular, when you need to work with the private sector, with state and local governments. Um, unlike FEMA, which uh, basically can order people around, it's very difficult for one agency. And I say this reluctantly because as a former HHS secretary, I wanted to own the world. Uh, but um, when you don't have proper jurisdiction, when you don't have the leverage, then you have to elevate it, elevate both the responsibility and we're much more sophisticated about the role of the private sector, the development of diagnostics, and that this has to all be part of um, our overall strategy in this country. Yeah, I just want to add, add to that and the need to, to be able to elevate it. And that centralized leadership, not only, not only is uh, needed at the federal level and to try to close these gaps between each individual department and agency because they, they want to exercise their own authorities, um, but there are gaps between them. But this will transcend all the way down to the state, local, private sector level, and it's only if you have centralized leadership coming from the White House, however that's done, is going to help kind of break that and, and transcend that leadership. And as an example, you mentioned Surge Medical at the local level. It's not just a public health thing. In fact, it's going to be more logistics. That's why emergency management and other disciplines are going to be so necessary to affect, in this, your example, surge medical dispensing of, of antibiotics. It's more logistics. Public health doesn't do logistics. So that's really why it, it's so important. This centralized leadership concept is just so critical. Everything comes back to it, and it transcends the federal, state, local, private sector levels um, to close these gaps that we have between the multiple disciplines and agencies that have to contribute to biodefense. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'll yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Now recognize Mr. Griffith of Virginia for five minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you all for uh, being here today. Uh, Dr. O'Toole, during the Ebola outbreak, there were weaknesses identified in our system that we are now witnessing again with Zika, surveillance, detection, diagnostics. Overall, how would improved surveillance of animal disease outbreaks strengthen our surveillance of human disease outbreaks and be better prepared for, make us better prepared for dealing with epidemics? Well, the majority of emerging infectious diseases come from animals. They're diseases that affect both humans and animals. So we definitely need to do a better job looking at those hot spots where we are likely to see spillover from one species to humans. Most of those hot spots are in tropical zones. 
in the jungles of South America and e Asia and Africa. Most of our surveillance is in temperate zones, for starters. Um, and we're now beginning to have tools such as high sequencing genomics, high speed genomics that could actually give us a much better handle of what diseases might be about to spill over. So we ought to think about funding field surveillance um, of these hotspot ecosystems, for starters. Secondly, we ought to fund much more rigorously the USDA's existing program for looking at agricultural animals because, um, you know, modern methods of agriculture put sometimes tens of thousands of animals together, um, creating our own industrial hotspots for spillover, and we've seen that with flu um, and the loss of turkeys and chickens in the past years. Thirdly, for humans, we have to have a much more strategic approach to surveillance. We've spent billions, literally billions, on surveillance in the past 15 years. Some things have worked, some things haven't. We've done a terrible job at lessons learned. Um, and we ought to go back and figure out what really has made a difference. Part of that is, again, we're going to, we sound like broken records, funding state health departments because that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. But we have to help state health departments do a better job. Diagnostics, again, critical, 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 critical. Clinical disease is very vague. If you don't have a diagnostic to say this is Zika and this is dengue, you're going to have a hard time figuring out what's going on at the beginning and at the middle of an epidemic. I would be very careful about investing large amounts of money um, and particular surveillance programs unless you know exactly what they're supposed to do, whether they work, and who's going to use that information. Well, and, and my next question was going to be that, uh, you know, are we doing an adequate job of integrating human, animal, and environmental health? I think you already answered that. I'd say no, we're not doing such a good job of integrating those. Secretary Shalaya, how can we improve integrating those three components to develop a more comprehensive strategy to ensure that we're prepared for whatever's next? I think our major recommendation is that we put this responsibility in the office of the Vice President, that we really need a national leader with the clout to integrate all these pieces and to help us, actually to help us think through a strategy because the integration itself will have to be done by agencies um, and by others, but um, the strategy, um, having the metrics for it, keeping people accountable. we've all recommended that we elevate that to the office of the Vice President. I appreciate that. Dr. O'Toole, uh, lots of concerns being raised about uh, Zika and our athletes uh, competing this summer in the Olympics, not only our athletes, but all the spectators who will go down, the coaches, the family members, et cetera. You believe that, uh, that we will be ready. Obviously, the Brazilians are going to have to do some things, and this is an international uh, effort, but uh, do you believe that we're going to be ready to uh, be able to defend our folks or have the biodefense efforts ready to defend our athletes and spectators and coaches and family members who go to the Olympics this year? Well, I understand um, the deep concern that Zika has raised. Whenever children are affected, you know, grown-ups get deeply, deeply worried, and that's what's happening here. I will say that there are dozens of very dangerous mosquito and even tick-borne diseases um, that have been with us um, for uh, millennia. Um, and you can, to some extent, protect yourself from mosquito bites by using DEET and dressing well and sleeping in places with screens and so forth. That's not a perfect 
protection, um, it's not a zero risk. Um, we have to wait and see um, till we have more information about what is really going on. We've known there has been um, more or less an epidemic of dengue and chikungunya, um, and dengue is a serious disease. Um, um, in South America for a few years, that hasn't stopped people from going down there. Um, I think we have to wait till there's more scientific data about Zika. Um, I know NIH is working on a vaccine. I wish we had one. Um, but um, I think if I were a young woman uh, who was pregnant or getting pregnant, I'd think twice about going to South America right now. Um, but um, I think for most people, there are ways to at least mitigate the risk. All right. I Chairman, would you indulge me with 30 back. seconds on the Zika question? Thank you. I just wanted to point out that aside from <coughs> medical countermeasures uh, on Zika, there are, there's a whole field of looking at how to um, bioengineer mosquitoes, which we already know how to do, so that they are actually, they're all males, they don't bite, uh, and they um, mate with the females and the, and the progenies um, don't survive. And I think that's a, it's a fascinating new technology that may um, be part of the solution to this problem. Uh, thank you. I know we have votes in a few minutes, but Ms. Brooks, if you have one quick follow-up question. Uh, one quick follow-up question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, to Mr. Greenwood with respect to uh, the Priority Review Voucher Program. Can you share with us existing PRV programs for rare pediatric disease or neglected tropical diseases, increasing the biotech investments in this area? Can you give us some examples where you've seen that already happen? I probably have that in my notes, and if I had time, I'd be whispered to behind. But I'll just say, and and if you would like to submit it for the record, that would be fine. Well, I will submit that for the record. But per, uh, suffice it to say that um, it is working. It has created both in the area of, of pediatrics and in the area of, of uh, neglected tropical diseases. It has generated a tremendous amount of interest and investment, uh, and it is it is uh, working perfectly well just as uh, Congress intended, and I'm, I have no doubts that it would work well in this field as well. And do you believe that if we added the D DHS's material threats to the FDA's PRV program, it would spur additional uh, development of the medical countermeasures? I, th I think that is precisely what needs to be done, and I have no doubt whatsoever that it will in be successful in inspiring investment in this very dangerous field. Thank you. Thank I'll you. yield back. Dr. Bridges, do you need a quick follow-up question? Yes, and, and uh, Secretary Shalala, you've spoken about the Vice President as sort of the overseer of all of this, and I appreciate the fact that there are too many agencies and too many people involved, and when too many people are in charge, there no one's in charge, and I and I get that. And too many committees of jurisdiction. And and I'm not e I'm not I, I don't sh quite share your enthusiasm for putting this uh, in, into the uh, executive branch. Perhaps it should be a speaker's position, but nevertheless, I will just tell you, I was down at the border, uh, Lower Rio Grande border uh, last weekend, and you realized you've got a, a CDC map that shows Mexico and Central America being purple with Zika, and my state's the other side of a, a relatively narrow river. It just seems to me we don't pay enough attention to border control. I know you can't stop mosquitoes at the border, but really the issue is stopping people who are infected or potentially infected 
And right now, we are undergoing another surge of unaccompanied minors and family units. And to the best of my ability to detect, we're not looking. And that is a point of great concern to me. So uh, all of the other things we've talked about are extremely important. But let us not forget border control because that is, uh, that's an issue as well. Well, um, I'll leave that um, uh, to your comments. But I would say that uh, we also have to beef up um, global health. And that is uh, PAHO, the uh, Pan American Health Organization, which is part of the World Health Organization. We can't stop mosquitoes from coming across borders. Uh, whether it's in people or they're just flying across. But um, it's not only beefing up our own infrastructure. We, one of the things that we learned with Ebola is that um, the World Health Organization doesn't have the kind of authorities it needs. It doesn't have the resources they need. Um, and so it's not just um, a state and local issue or a federal issue. It's also an international issue. And I think your point about border security is also uh, but I would put it in the context of international health security and of and looking at the agencies uh, that we have now, the international agencies that we have now, and um, we know that they're weak. We learned that during uh, Ebola and previously, and uh, this committee also uh, might have a hearing because there have been recent reports on the international health organizations to take a look at those relationships as well. Thank you. I know you're going to call votes any moment. I just want to follow up with two quick questions. Um, if you can't answer this here, get back to us. I'd like an answer from each of you. If, if you know of countries that have model programs to do the very thing you're describing, uh, we'd love to know about that. Um, does anybody know any off offhand, or would you like to get back to us on that? My only comment, Mr. Chairman, is that if, if we don't have it, I would be very surprised that's if anyone else in the world That's what I fear. Be fair. There are centralized health systems in smaller places uh, that may be more integrated. But um, I think that um, we have different levels of government, different levels of responsibility. We need to put up. We can't use their models. Um, we'll have to put our own Thank you. system together. Another question. Just uh, hope you can give information to us for the record. Should and based upon, given the the recent GEO report on the failings of BioWatch programs including the lack of valid performance data, should we continue to fund it? Do you have an answer for that, or do you want to get back to us? I'm sorry. Would you repeat the question, Mr. Chairman? Uh, should the Federal Government continue to fund the BioWatch program, given the recent GAO, re GAO report on its failings and problems, including the lack of valid performance data? I, I think we probably will get back to you on the record with that. Yeah. Oh, Tilk, uh, Ms. Otilk, can you answer that? Um, I'm a longtime critic of BioWatch, um, but um, I think you should continue to fund the current program for a defined period of time until we have a strategy for what we're going to go do next. I think the notion that BioWatch or even the next-gen BioWatch, a series of environmental sensors, can protect the country is wrong-headed. The technology just isn't good enough. Its cost-effectiveness ratio is just not advantageous. We need a new generation of technology. It's not there yet. Again, diagnostics can make a big difference. You do need these sorts of sensors to protect high-risk targets and uh, national security events and so forth. The problem with BioWatch right now is it is not characterized, as GAO points out very graphically and I think accurately. We don't know that it works. 
it's not clear that it doesn't work. It has a very limited range of bugs that it looks for. And um, to really cover an area of a city, you'd need a lot of those machines. Thank you. So it would be very expensive. Well, with that, I, w I want the committee, to, uh, first of all, thank I you. Oh, yes, Mr. Gant. Thank you. Um, f first of all, with all due respect to my friend from Texas, I don't think that any kind of border control, even building a wall, is going to stop the, these vector-borne diseases from coming over. And uh, I know that's not what you mean. But, but what it does really highlight is how we are an international commu community. It's not just the mosquitoes coming. We even had Ebola cases come here because of international travel. And so that's why it's so unbelievably critical that we take this report seriously and that we really work hard as a committee. And Mr. Chairman, I just want to commend you again for calling this hearing. I know you're planning to have a classified briefing when we come back from the February recess, and I think that's a good other step. And then, and then I would just finally offer um, my input and the input of, of the uh, minority staff and, and members to help come up with a robust hearing schedule for the rest of the year. I think if there's nothing else we do, then spend our time on this report and the recommendations trying to get our arms around it and, and, and get that sense of urgency to our respective leaderships, and it will have been successful. Thank you. And I want to thank the, everybody again from the Commission for um, doing this deep dive because it really is important. And I, let me also announce on March 2nd we will have a, a hearing on the Zika virus uh, where many of these issues will come up. Um, we'll take a deep dive in that as, as well as uh, what uh, my friend said about uh, getting into a classified briefing and some of the biodefense issues, critically important. Um, and should be a wake-up call for America. But as you've said a couple of times, Mr. Greenwood, um, uh, so we may not uh, do these things until after the fact, and that would be a tragedy. So we'll get moving on that. So in conclusion, again, I want to thank all the witnesses and members that participated in today's hearing. I remind members they have 10 business days to submit questions for the record. I ask all the witnesses to agree to respond promptly to the questions. And with that, this committee hearing is adjourned. Thank you.